Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone, and welcome to DevRaga Personal Finance, episode 95. And in this episode, I'll discuss specifically about vehicle-related expenses, from an Australian Taxation Office perspective. This is part two in my mini-series on deductions. This episode is mainly directed at Australians, and for overseas listeners, you may find it very useful to know how things work down under when it comes to taxation and deductions. For Australian listeners, just remember to check your circumstance with an accredited tax accountant. Before you listen to this episode, I suggest you listen to episode 94, where I discuss more broadly about income and deductions. For those of you that are new to the channel, remember there are three aims of this channel. Number one is to be educated and be financially literate. Number two is use that education and be empowered. And number three is to feel entertained. Now, just a disclaimer, I'm not a financial advisor. I'm not an accountant. I'm not a lawyer, nor am I a financial planner. Make sure you take any financial decisions you want to make to your appropriate advisors. But if you're stuck on what to do, here are some simple steps to get you on the right track when it comes to saving, investing, and personal finance in general. In my humble view, there are five easy steps which anybody could implement. Step one is pay yourself first. What does this mean? It means take a set percentage of your after-tax income and put it aside. I recommend 20%. Step two is you take that pay yourself money and invest it, ideally into something that you understand or want to understand. For me, I just invest in index funds because I understand index funds. Step three is reinvest the dividends. The power of compounding from reinvesting those dividends is phenomenal. Step four, do it for the long term not 5, 10, or even 15 years. I'm talking 20, 30, or even 40 plus years. Time should be on your side. And step five, my favorite, make sure you automate the investment. What does automate mean? It means when the money hits your bank account, you automatically take 20% and put it away and start investing. If you did these simple five steps and nothing else, you're likely to have more money than you'll ever need in your retirement. And remember, money is just a tool. It doesn't bring you happiness. Use it as a tool to make your life a little bit better, but most importantly, to make the lives of people around you a lot better. Before we get on to the main topic of deductions in relation to vehicles, I want to discuss one of the most common questions I get all the time, and that is, should I invest in an ETF or an index fund? Now, to discuss an ETF and index fund, I've discussed it extensively in episode nine, one of my earlier episodes. Um, I, I think it's reasonably important to go ahead and, and listen to that. 
particularly when it comes to active and passive investing. So, to understand index funds and ETFs, you need to understand what is passive investing versus what is active investing. Passive investing simply means you take a set percentage of your money and put it into a broad-based index fund or ETF and you set and forget. And the dividends from those index funds or ETF investments get reinvested and then you keep investing into the same index funds or ETFs on a quarterly, monthly, weekly basis, depending on how much cash flow you have. That is passive investing. That is, you ignore the market noise, whether it goes up, whether it goes down, whether it remains flat, it doesn't matter. You just keep investing. That is what I do, and that's what I've been doing for over 10 years. Active investing is when you try and time the market. That is either time the market for index funds or ETFs, or you buy and sell individual stocks. So an active investor might want to buy Commonwealth Bank at a particular time and then sell at a particular time to make a profit. Sometimes active investors do very well and sometimes passive investors do it very well. But overall, in the long term, it's very difficult to consistently beat the market being an active investor. I've talked about this numerous times in my previous episodes. The evidence is against active investors. Passive investing over the long term using ETFs and index funds tends to outperform active investors. And that's because of two things. One is it's very difficult to time the market. So therefore, time in the market is far more important. But mostly, active investing can be quite costly, whereas passive investing generally is cheaper. And lower fees means more money for you. Now that we know the difference between active and passive investing, we need to understand the difference between index funds and ETFs. Often they get mixed up and often people think they're the same thing. They're very similar but they're not the same thing. ETFs are basically a stock-like product which represents a bunch of companies in the index and the ETF is actually listed in the stock exchange. This means an ETF behaves like an individual stock except it doesn't just hold one individual company, it holds all of the companies in whatever index fund that it tracks. So to give you an example, the ETF ASX 200, the ASX 200 has 200 top companies of Australia, and the ETF is basically a stock-like product that represents the entire index, ASX 200, and the ETF gets listed on the stock exchange. So why do it that way? It just means that the ETF can now be traded in the exchange, just like any individual stock. Except in this instance, you're not trading an individual stock, you're trading an entire index. Now, ETFs often get traded multiple times a day, which means you need some sort of a broker or some sort of brokerage account. What that means is you might need things like NAB Trade, Self Wealth, or Comsec. Index funds, on the other hand, 
are only bought at the end of the day. This means the price of the units associated with the index fund is determined at the end of the day. Why is that relevant? This means when the market opens at 10 a.m., even if I put the money in to buy the index ASX 200, not the ETF version, but the index version, even if I put $1,000 to try and buy it at 11 a.m., I don't buy it until 4 p.m. when the market closes. So generally with Vanguard, for example, they say if you put the money before 1 p.m., you'll buy it at the end of the same day. If you put the money after 1 p.m., you buy it at the end of the next day. So index funds can't be traded multiple times, bought and sold during the same day. Now, the other main difference between ETFs and index funds is the way dividend reinvestment works. With index funds, because you don't need a broker, you can just select the button which says dividend reinvesting and the dividends get directly reinvested into the index fund. You don't need a broker. You don't need a cash account. It just happens. For an ETF, what you need to do, you can still do dividend reinvestment, but what you need to do is the dividends may go to a cash account, then you may have to buy more ETFs, or you need to go to the share registry and change the actual dividend reinvestment. You've got to tick that box. So it is an extra step, but it can still be done with ETFs um, as simple as it is can be done with index funds. So let's use an example so that we're all on the same page here. Tom has $1,000 to invest every month. He wants to set up a dividend reinvestment plan. Tom wants to be able to buy and sell ETFs, but he's not keen on individual stocks. So basically, Tom wants to trade. For him, it may be a good thing to invest in ETFs, exchange-traded funds, so he can buy and sell them perhaps multiple times a day or multiple times a week. Essentially, an ETF is like an individual stock, except it contains the list of companies within the index. But to buy ETFs, you need a broker like Comsec, Self-Wealth or NAB Trader, whatever broker you might want to use. A broker is basically the middleman between you, the consumer, and the ETF. Now, if Tom decides he's going to regularly invest monthly and wishes not to trade and never sell, then he may just stick with an index-style investing and regularly invest $1,000 into a particular index fund, not an ETF. With this, the reinvestment of dividends is much easier to set up and he doesn't need a brokerage firm to buy them. But the management fee for index funds, generally you'll find, is slightly higher than the management fee for ETFs. So you've got to factor that in as well. So which one should you invest in? This is the common question that I get. To be honest, the reality is, it doesn't really matter too much which strategy you choose, whether you choose an index fund, whether you choose an ETF. But the risk here is waiting to invest. Time is literally costing you money. So my answer to that question is, if you're just gonna buy regularly on a regular basis and keep investing forever and reinvest dividends, it doesn't really matter what strategy you choose. You just gotta choose a strategy and crack on with it. Don't waste time. The people that waited since March because they thought the crash was coming are still waiting. They've missed out on over 2,000 point gains in the ASX market. 
And in the US market, they've just missed out big time with several thousand point gains. Now, that's about it for that question. Let's get on to the main topic. Now, remember in the last episode, we discussed broadly about income and deductions. In this episode, we will specifically look at vehicle-related expenses and transport expenses. So, what can you claim? Generally speaking, the ATO says travel between work and home is considered private travel. This is not claimable for the vast majority of trips. But if your home is a place of work, then you may be able to claim travel between workplace to workplace. Now, if you have multiple jobs and you travel between workplaces, then the travel between the workplaces is claimable. So let's use an example. Suppose you're a doctor and are working in hospital one. Your shift ends, oh, sorry, starts at 8 a.m. and finishes at 8 p.m. Then you have another job which starts at 10 p.m., hospital two, and finishes at 8 a.m. the following day. Let's say that work is on call, but you're required to be on premises for hospital two. This means your travel from hospital A to hospital B may be claimable. Now, once you finish your shift and head home the next day, that trip is not claimable, nor is a trip from your home to hospital one. That is, travel from home to hospital one and travel from hospital two to home is not claimable, but the travel from hospital one and hospital two is claimable. What about alternative workplace travel within the same employment? Is it claimable? The answer is yes. The ATO says it is. Let's use an example to highlight this point. Suppose you're a doctor working in hospital A, and as part of your job, you need to visit a patient in their home, maybe hospital in the home or palliative care, etc. So you need to drive from hospital A to the client's premises. This trip is claimable. Then the trip back is also claimable back to the hospital, that is the base. This is not uncommon for many professions who may have to travel to clients from their principal workplace. So alternative workplace travel is claimable. If your home is also a workplace and you need to travel between your home and work, then travel to your workplace, it might be claimable, but you need to check the finer details. COVID and working from home has really opened a can of worms in this sector. What about bulky items? If you carry them to and from work, is that claimable as travel? Look, carrying bulky items or tools, if you need to carry such items such that you can't leave it at work, then this travel is also claimable. For example, ladders, grinders, work-related machinery. Now, predominantly, my listeners are doctors. And every year, the doctor's bag comes up. I see this online, I see this on forums and Facebook groups. For those who are interested, a doctor's bag contains emergency equipment and medications, which doctors may be required to carry as part of their job. For the large part, this does not constitute the clause's bulky equipment. Furthermore, what about carrying a defibrillator? Does that count as bulky equipment? Well, most doctors who work in hospitals or private practices, and mostly such equipment can be found in their workplace, so it would be extremely difficult to claim a defib as a bulky equipment. So you can't really claim that equipment 
um, as part of your work-related travel. And you can't really say that the defibrillator can't be left at work. I mean, most workplaces, when it comes to health practices, have defibs on site. So that's travel to and from work. What about travel expenses or transport expenses? So there's a lot of things that you need to think about when traveling. The cost of driving a car, ride-sharing costs such as Uber and Lyft, flights, catching trains, buses, taxis, etc. That constitutes transport expenses, and that is claimable. What you can't claim is minor work-related tasks. So this is open to a little bit of interpretation. For example, if you need to travel to collect mail on the way to work, and the mail is related to work, you can't claim that because that's a very minor work. If you're unsure, ask your accountant, or better yet, ask the ATO directly. You might be able to get a private ruling on that. Now, if you need to drive between home and workplace multiple times, this is still not work-related and is still considered private travel. For example, you drive to work, but then forgot your work documents at home, driving back to collect the documents from work and driving back to work. Is this travel claimable? And the answer is no. What about on-call work for the same workplace or employer? I get asked this a lot. I had to look this up. Surprisingly, on-call work for the same employer is not claimable. This was a learning point for me. Most doctors do 24 to 72 hour on-calls, particularly if they're trauma surgeons or specialist on-call at large tertiary centers. So let's use an example. If you're a surgical doctor, and are on call for the weekend for 72 hours, which is pretty routine in most you know, specialty centres um, for subspecialists and also for rural medicine, you're expected to work, let's say, from 8am to 10pm Friday, Saturday and Sunday, and then be on call overnight, including until 8am to Monday morning. So that concludes about 72 hours of call. If you get a trauma case or a surgical emergency, and you get woken up at 2 o'clock in the morning for an emergency operation, and you need to drive from home to work to operate on that patient, that driving expense is not claimable. This is according to the ATO, and it completely took me by surprise. So it's worthwhile checking with your accountant about this and again asking the ATO about your specific circumstance and asking for a private ruling. What about if you live in a place where you're forced to drive to work because there's no public transport? Can you claim that travel expense? The answer is no. What about shift workers at odd times? Nope, unfortunately not claimable. Now I remember I used to do twilight shifts at RMH Hospital, which is Royal Melbourne Hospital, back in the day, and there was no public transport when the shift finished at two o'clock in the morning. So I had to drive to work and park in the city. Not claimable, including the parking fees. What about your home is a place of business for your sole trade of work, and you travel from that place to your employer. Let's use an example. You have an education business where you provide webinars from home, and this is your private sole trader ABN income. You also, has a, you also have a pay-as-you-go employment. So you travel from home, that is your place of business, to your pay-as-you-go work. Is this claimable? And the answer is no. What about itinerant work? Is this claimable for travel expenses? The short answer is yes, but what is itinerant work? Itinerant work is when you leave home and go to worksite one and then go to worksite two 
and then go to site three. And at the end of the last work site, you return home. You can claim travel expenses between all of the work sites, but not from home and to home. That portion related to home travel is considered private travel. So let's use an example. Suppose you're a tradesperson in plumbing. You travel from work, uh, sorry, you travel from home to work, site one, finish a job, then allocate another job at another site, and this happens three or four times a day, which is very common for tradespersons. Then you finish all of the jobs and return to home. This travel between the work sites is claimable. Usually itinerant workers don't know where their next job site is, and often it's unplanned. You need to make sure it's not a matter of convenience you are traveling between sites. Let's use an example where the work is not considered itinerant. Suppose you're a locum doctor. You're at home watching TV, Netflix, whatever it is, and then you get a phone call to do an urgent shift for a sick leave at a hospital. That's about an hour away. You do the shift, you travel there, and you return home. This is not itinerant work because during your shift, you're only at the one work site, that is the one hospital even though you didn't have the shift planned. Let's move on to discuss about car deductions especially. This comes under vehicle-related expenses and transport costs. This is kind of the holy grail of deductions which most Australians may be claiming. So it's important to know what is claimable and what isn't claimable. Again, check with your accountant. Car deductions are possible if you use your own car for work-related purposes. For ATO purposes, a car must be defined as a vehicle carrying less than nine passengers and designed to carry less than one tonne of load and does not include non-motorised modes of transport. So if you use a bike to go to work, you can't claim a deduction for that. That is a push bike. The ATO has a fantastic poster about car expenses, specifically on their websites. I found this information very, very useful. Obviously, all of the rules we discussed about what constitutes work-related travel also applies to cars, with specific reference to bulky tools. So here are the rules. The tools or equipment are essential for you to perform your work. So for example, a forensic pathologist carrying a bulky defib is probably not going to pass the pub test. There was no secure storage at your workplace for the equipment. You're not carrying the equipment as merely a choice. So those are the main things when it comes to bulky tools with reference to work-related travel and car expenses. What about claiming car expenses if you have two different cars? Do you need to use the same car or can you use multiple cars? And the answer is you can use multiple cars. You can use different methods for claims as well between the cars. And I'll go into methods shortly in this episode. What about claim deductions if the expense has been reimbursed by your work? And the answer is no. You can't double dip. You can only claim deductions which have not been reimbursed by your workplace. I've been asked this a few times, and the answer is no. If you get reimbursed, you get reimbursed. It's in fact better than claiming a deduction. You can't make a profit out of a reimbursement. So when it comes to deductions and the method of calculating your car deductions, there are two main methods. So what are they? Method one is called cents per kilometer method. And method two is called logbook method. So let's talk about the cents per kilometre method because that's the easiest and probably the most commonly claimed work-related car expense. 
The cents per kilometre method means you can claim a maximum 5,000 kilometre work-related per financial year. Up until June 2020, you could only claim 68 cents per kilometre. But for the 2021 financial year, you can claim 72 cents per kilometre. You can't add fuel, you can't add depreciation, you can't add insurance costs on top of this. You need to keep very agile records and you need evidence it's actually your own car. That is, the car has to be registered under your name. And that makes it pretty obvious, but if you're claiming for things that you don't own, that's a bit dodgy. So let's use an example for the cents per kilometre method. If you claim the entire 5,000 kilometres and each kilometre is 72 cents, then the maximum car-related deduction you can make is $3,600. This is a deduction. It's not an allowance. So this means if your income is $100,000 and you deduct $3,600 from that, your taxable income becomes $96,400. So you only pay tax on the $96,400 of income. So that's the cents per kilometre method. What about the logbook method? How does that work? This method involves a percentage of work-related expenses for your car. For example, you can say that you use 50% of your car for work-related travel. The amount of car that you use in terms of driving and kilometres and all that, 50% of the entire costs is related to work. Therefore, you can claim a 50% deduction in terms of the running costs. Now, in this method, you can include cost of running the car, so the fuel, or in my case, electricity, because I drive an electric car, insurance costs, registration, and depreciation of the car as well. You can't claim capital expenditure for the car, and this includes any modifications or features, upgrades, paint protection, tinting of the windows. So you can't just buy a car and make it into a race car and then claim all the modifications as a work-related tax deduction because even if you use the car for work purposes, you don't need a high-end spoiler or a race kit or an M kit for your BMW. It just doesn't make sense. So how much of a logbook do you need? You need about 12 weeks at least, provided your work-related travel has not changed significantly. And if it does change significantly, then you will need a new logbook. Your logbook can last a maximum of five years, but I think you need to check that with your accountant. Can you claim a deduction for car expenses if you travel for conferences or work-related meetings? And the answer is absolutely yes. This applies to a lot of doctors that go to a lot of conferences, particularly if you live in a city that has the conference, you can claim the cost of going to the conference or work-related meeting. What about damages that are incurred to the car in the line of work-related activity? And the answer to that is you may be able to claim it as an expense for repairs or maintenance or a portion of it, provided you have a percentage private use versus work-related use. This is interesting because it's not something that I've thought about or something that I've ever done, and it's something that I didn't know, so that's important. That was a good learning point. What about cars owned by your business? Now, this is beyond the scope of this podcast, so I won't go into it because remember, this is DevRaga personal finance podcast, not business finance. Uh, business finances can be quite complex and it's better to get your accountant's advice on this specific subtopic, so I apologize, I won't go into that. So in summary, we've covered quite a bit here. That is, we've covered what constitutes work-related travel. We've covered what constitutes work-related travel if your workers are tenant what constitutes work-related travel if you do work at home, what sort of expenses you can claim, 
and the two main ways of claiming deductions for work-related car use, that is cents per kilometre method or logbook method. What about other travel expenses? And the other travel expenses you can claim are meals, accommodation, fuel and electricity costs for travelling to and from conferences and workplace meetings. And generally speaking, with meals, you can only be claimed if you stayed overnight. So if you went to a conference for an hour or two and had a big meal at a nice five-star restaurant, but you didn't stay overnight, you can't claim that meal. Now, for doctors who are in public practice, if you're a consultant in a public hospital in most states, you may be governed by the EBA, depending on your contract. So if you've made claims as part of your CME allowance, you can't claim again as part of your work-related travel. So to give you an example, if you went to a conference in Singapore and that cost you $10,000 and your hospital has reimbursed that cost, you can't claim that as a deduction for your work. Other modes of travel, air, bus, tram, train, taxi, ride-sharing expenses, car park fees, toll fees, car hire fees, cost of operating another person's car if you had to use to travel um, to conferences or work-related meetings, all of these are claimable. Um, so make sure you keep accurate receipts and accurate records because you may be missing out on deductions which you are legitimately able to claim. Here's an interesting question that I got. What about fines incurred parking or speeding during your work-related travel? Um, this comes from an anonymous person, quite clearly, and it's a fantastic question. <laughs> and the answer is no. So if you went to a conference and on the way you got a speeding fine, it's still a speeding fine that you need to pay. You can't claim it as a work-related deduction. So that's something that I didn't know. And it's a very interesting question. So well done, Anonymous. That's a fantastic question. So I'm sorry, you can't speed and claim it as an expense. Now, to make it clear about other travel expenses, let's use an example. So you're holidaying in Sydney and you become aware of a conference which can be work-related. Can you claim airfares and hotel accommodation? The answer is no, because you're holidaying in Sydney and you only came across the conference while you were in Sydney, but you can claim the expense you incurred to travel to the conference from your hotel. So if you took public transport, ride-sharing, taxi, whatever, you can claim that amount, but you can't claim the entire you know, holiday as a work-related tax deduction. What about this situation? Supposing you're in New York City for a work-related 10-day conference, and then you decide to use two of those days to stay back and do some sightseeing. This is a very common situation. Certainly I've done this before, and I know a lot of doctors do this a lot, and I know a lot of people do it in terms of conferences. Can you claim the extra two days of accommodation as a deduction? And the answer is no. What about meals and incidentals for those two extra days? And the answer is no. But can you at least claim the entire airfares even though you did a sightseeing trip within your time at the conference? And the answer is, yes, you can. You can claim the entire airfares, even though within that conference time, you did some sightseeing. This was surprising, so that's good. What about if you travel to Perth for a conference, but you take your family with you? Again, a very common thing that a lot of doctors do and a lot of people do anyway. Can you claim the entire trip? The answer is no. You can only claim the portion you would have spent had you traveled alone. Now, what does that mean? It means supposing you booked a two-bedroom apartment due to family reasons, but you would have booked a one-bedroom apartment otherwise, 
you can only claim the latter and not for the two bedroom apartment. So you can only claim the difference. What about travel allowances? Now this depends on whether your employer includes it in your income statement or not. So you need to check that with your employer. If they do include it, then you have to declare it as an income and then claim whatever travel expenses you incurred. Now if they don't include it, you can include it, then claim the deduction or simply choose not to include it and not claim any deductions at all. This only works if you spent the entire allowance, of course. What if you didn't spend the entire allowance? Well, you'll need to include it into your income statement and claim a deduction for the portion that you used. Just because you have an allowance, let's say $500 a year on meals from your employer as part of work-related travel, and you don't use that $500, that doesn't mean you automatically get a deduction. You need to only deduct what you used. Now, the ATO is a very detailed breakdown of what constitutes reasonable amounts of claims, depending where you travel and what type of travel you do. Now, what sort of records do you need to keep when it comes to logbooks and travel expenses? Look, generally the answer to this question is you need to keep as much as you can. So detailed logbooks of the stop, start, readings of your car, your odometer readings, keep all the maintenance expenses and receipts. So basically, if you're doing work-related travel, just ask for a receipt and keep it. Keep all of the receipts for meals and accommodations, particularly for overnight stays, because that's what's claimable. And I didn't know this, this was interesting. If you travel for more than six days, you need to maintain a travel diary. So that was new to me. Uh, you need to maintain where you were, what you were doing, what purposes you did it for, what dates and times and activities you started it and ended it. So that was interesting. And there are some specific exceptions for keeping records. So visit the ATO website for more information on the exceptions for keeping records. Now, we covered a lot in this episode, and of course, we've also covered passive and active investing ETFs and index funds, and that's about it. In the next episode, I'll go into detail about other types of work-related deductions, such as clothing, laundry, and dry cleaning expenses and more. So I found some interesting information there, which I think you will find useful and enjoyable. Thank you very much for the questions and the likes and comments, and especially that one about speeding fines and parking fines. It's a very important question and um, it's a very interesting question. I never really thought about it, but uh, yeah, it's not claimable. Please make sure you give me a five-star rating on Apple Podcast or any podcasting app you may be using. It really, really does help me promote the podcast so more and more people can download it and listen to it. And if you really want, leave a review too. That would be fantastic. And I will read out creative reviews right here on the podcast. And on that note... Here's another review from Paracelsius, Paracelsius, beg your pardon, from CastBox. That's such a cool name, by the way, Paracelsius. And he or she has written, Hello, Dev. I'm so happy I discovered your podcast. Thank you very much for your time explaining the ins and outs of financial principles. These are subjects that are not so easy to understand unless you have someone dedicated and experienced like you. Thank you very much, Paracelsius, for the great feedback. Uh, but the reality is... I'm not even vaguely associated with the financial field. Like you, I just fell into learning about finances and I just needed a way to understand it in a really simplistic way, which is why I repeat my five steps at the start of every episode. If you get nothing out of any episode, those five steps are probably all you need to do when it comes to the really, really fundamental basics of personal finance. 
Now, remember to like Devraga Facebook page, shout out questions, comments, or topic suggestions, or even private message me. Share this channel with family and friends, Apple Podcast, Anchor, CastBox, Spotify. I'm all over the shop. Google me, devraga.com, D-E-V-R-A-G-A.com. And remember, always pay yourself first. Take 20% of your after-tax income and put it aside. That is your pay yourself money, never to be touched again. And learn about car-related deductions and travel-related expenses. But make sure you ask your accountant rather than start deducting things based on some random doctor blabbling on on a podcasting channel. This is Dev Raga, Personal Finance, Episode 95. And as always, please stay safe. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.